Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Kai Wortmann, working in philosophy of education at the University of Tübingen, and I'm here today with Anna Honaka to talk about her new book, Pragmatic Humanism Revisited, an essay on making the world a home. In this book, Anna proposes pragmatist answers to some of the most existential questions of our life, questions about how to live a good life, questions about God, and even about death. The book is very elegantly written, and it was both intellectually stimulating and a great pleasure to read, so I'm really happy to have the author here. Anna, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thanks for having me, Kai. Before talking about the book, can you maybe start off by saying a bit about your background? What brought you into philosophy and what made you interested in pragmatism? So I guess we start with a really, really big question. What brought me to philosophy? So in a very broad sense, um, I always liked to ask questions and to doubt everything and to look behind <laughs> what I was told. So, um, and I think that accompany, accompanies me until today that I think philosophy is um, a critical tool. So in a way, I've been a philosopher all my life. But of course, um, there's something as uh, professional philosophy. And that, of course, took a little bit longer. And I think it was particularly a teacher at high school who um, brought me to the discipline of philosophy and uh, who asked the big question and make it an... Yeah, really an experience to philosophize. And then um, I, yeah, I decided I want to give it a try to be a professional philosopher. And that's uh, how I ended up. <laughs> and then you, you uh, worked heavily in the pragmatist tradition. What, what drew you uh, to this instead of, say, analytic philosophy or... Uh, other continental philosophies? Well, that is, um, of course, a contingent uh, thing. 
Um, and actually, I started um, when I studied philosophy at the University of Münster. Um, I did a lot of analytical philosophy and philosophy of science. It's uh, what you do nowadays <laughs> when you're doing philosophy. And uh, um, I was very interested in analytical philosophy of mind. So that's where I come from. Um, and then it was even after I started doing my PhD um, that I came into contact with uh, William James and the pragmatist tradition. And it was because I had to prepare a talk and I read a text by a theologian. And in this text, the author said, um, pragmatist thinking, pragmatist theology is, uh, is crap. <laughs> Don't read that. It's, uh, it's useless uh, and it um, doesn't make any sense. It's, um, so, and that, so you wanted to find out yourself whether exactly, it is Exactly. And that was the moment when I started reading William James. And you found out it is not that crappy, actually. Actually, I was uh, I fell in love with William James at that moment, and um, um, yeah, I, I found it very um, very modern. Though it's not that. I mean, it, <laughs> it's been a while that William James uh, tackled uh, the problems, but the problems he tackled um, are still very. Um, very up-to-date, I think. Uh, so the questions of um, um, how can you believe in a modern pluralist world, I think that's a question that still lingers today. And, um, and the answers he tries to give um, are yeah, very appealing, at least to me. So that's how I came to the pragmatist tradition. <laughs> that's, that's a great uh, way to to start talking about the book. But before uh, talking about your pragmatist perspective and James a little bit in more detail, uh, maybe we can start with the title, Making the World a Home. What does that mean? <laughs> so um, I think that pretty much sums up the, the overall aim of, of the book. That... Um, Philosophy is, of course, it's, um, and especially as a profession, it's a um, theoretical account to the world and to understand the world. But especially the pragmatist uh, thinking is about um, finding a way how to, to live well and to find a philosophy in the broadest sense That um, is a Weltanschauung, a worldview, um, and that is not only a theoretical thing, but also a practical thing. It leads you, it navigates you through the jungle of life, um, and uh, it helps you to, to make sense of everything. And um, so it's the metaphor of making the world a home is... Um, Uh, trying to pin that down, that um, it's not only um, theory, but it's about finding a theory that helps you living. And um, 
that creates, um, in the words of William James, intimacy with the world. So it has to it has to fit the world, meaning your life experience, your everyday experience, um, and by finding positions and perspectives on that world. Um, in a way, you um, don't have to feel as a stranger anymore, but that's still another metaphor. I don't know if it's uh, really helpful <laughs> to explain metaphors by metaphors. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, I think you call it also in the, in the book, uh, philosopher, uh, philosophy for real human beings. So in, I, I suppose, in opposition to professional philosophers. It, it it has to offer something for for the readers, not only in terms of intellectual uh, um, intellectual uh, joy and intellectual puzzles and intellectual um, uh, riddle solving, but also for actually living in the world. Exactly, and. Um... I wouldn't make the the dichotomy too strong. I, I okay. really think that um, professional philosophy should do this, but we all know that um, what's done at universities all too often has a strong focus, to say the least, on the purely theoretical side. And, I mean, that's something that most of the classical pragmatists and also the neo-pragmatists criticize about uh, professional philosophy because um, they don't want to make this dichotomy of there's something like professional philosophy that's done in academia and then there's something like popular philosophy that's for the usual people. <laughs> um, but it's the very, um, very uh, challenge um, or the very aim of philosophy to um, help people to live their lives. And, um, yeah. And I suppose when, when we now turn to the, to the uh, pragmatist perspective in your book, the, this function of philosophy also played a role in the life of your two uh, main authors, William James and... Um, Ferdinand Canning Scott Schiller, uh, because at least James was uh, very melancholic, <laughs> and today you would say probably he was depressed, and he really tried to think philosophically in order to to tackle these melancholic impulses in his life. I think absolutely. So um, perhaps. A main term you can use for describing um, the starting point of his thinking and his philosophizing is crisis. Um, he had a lot of uh, philosophical crises that are not not really to be separated from a life crisis. So the questions of um, for example, of free will, of uh, the reality of values, um, of the worth and meaning of life are philosophical questions, but it matters how you answer them. And William James 
really very much felt that that if you give uh, give an answer to, for example, the question of free will, that is uh, saying no, you don't have free will because in his time and up today, it's um, the um, if you have um, if you say that the world and everything that happens is determined. So if you're an adherent of determinism, um, and uh, you say if if everything is determined, you can't have a free will. I know that's only one option, but if you say that, then um, what does it mean for your life? It's exactly um, the pragmatist insight that it's not it's not only a theoretical position. It it tells you something and it makes something with you um, if you know or if you think that it's true that you don't have a free will or that um, there's no morality or something like that. So. William James really struggled with these questions, um, not as a philosophical hobby, but as um, life questions. What what I really like about your book was that uh, it kind of dramatizes these questions and make them very existential. And I think that's a very helpful way to think about pragmatism because it is all, uh, very often portrayed as very superficial and... Uh, capitalist and it comes from America and therefore we already know <laughs> that it is intimately uh, connected with uh, all the evil <laughs> in the world and um, uh, and it often reads as also because James is a very elegant writer um, it, it sometimes makes the impression that it it uh, rather avoids the big question than tries to tackle them. But I think the reason is that uh, the answers are actually so um, uh, different from the usual way we answer them. So I, this doesn't lead to a question now, but <laughs> I really like your way of, of making them, making these pragmatist uh, answers to these existential questions really dramatic. Was uh, maybe I can turn this into a question and say, was this on purpose or <laughs> was there a strategy behind it? You made a very important point when you um, uh, hinted to the reception, at least in the German reception of pragmatism, as something superficial or something that is very optimistic and concentrating on. Uh, visibility and um, um, so I really at least uh, when I started reading William James I had a completely different um, experience and um, after all these years I, I still stick to this imp impression um, that it's it has a very dark very melancholic side and it has a sense for um for these um for the failures of uh human practices and um it has a sense for the for the tragic so it's um it, it was indeed um important to me to to underline that to highlight that um that uh, dimension of pragmatist um, thinking. And um, the other point, perhaps um, to avoid any 
any disappointments uh, for for possible readers. Um, I think it is it is another pragmatist insight that there are no um, fixed answers. So in a way, I don't try to give answers to to the readers to what's the meaning of life. I cannot do that, and um, I think it's something like intellectual honesty to to lay out that uh, it's not possible to give universal answers, but to tell people that they they can find answers for their own lives. Um, but they have provisional, to give them. yeah, provisional answers. That's that's a, that's a great point to turn to the first because your your uh, book. Um, contains four chapters on on four different topics science religion ethics and death and th this would be a good starting point to talk about uh, science because often uh, pragmatism is connected as first and foremost uh, philosophy of science or uh, theory of truth or something like that um, uh, so maybe you can start off by saying something about uh, the your way of making uh, the question of science um, relevant for these existential questions? Um, well, I think um, this is a point we have to handle very careful because I don't want to, um, to signal that science isn't important or that we cannot trust scientific findings um, and by no way I want to um, <laughs> to say that science is, is not relevant to our everyday lives. Uh, on the contrary, it is very relevant. And I think the last uh, month through the pandemic made it very, very clear. And it will be very crucial for tackling problems like climate change. Um, but my starting point... Um, with respect to this chapter was that a lot of people who turned down religious worldviews started to focus on science as pseudo-religion or as a substitute for religion and think that um, not only that the natural world is all there is, so there are no angels, no demons, no gods, but um, that science is the only way to truth. So um, that's what I call uh, scientism. So um, when science turns into a worldview, um, and I think that's actually problematic. Um, and um, I try to elaborate on how Pragmatism is very serious about scientific inquiry, um, but at the same time abstains from making science a new religion. So I think that is, uh, that's the point, the, the, the middle path you, you, um, um, I, I want to lay out. So on the one hand, it is about... Uh not about uh, denying the, the, the worth of science, but also not saying that science is 
the only or the most privileged or uh, the best um, way to uh, to know about reality and to know about what is really there. Is that a, is that a good way to put it? Well, um, um, it, yes, in a way, yes. Um, but again, uh, science is, I mean, without science, uh, the world would be completely different. And um, I do not want to go back in a pre-science uh, era. Um, it is only that um, a, a certain account of looking at science, of understanding science as something neutral, because I think with pragmatism we can um, focus on the fact that science is something done by people. There's, I mean, we tend to to think of science as something abstract, but science is something that people do and that is funded and that uh, um, scientific processes happen in a certain context and in certain situations with a certain goal. And um, this is something we should also have in mind when we look at scientific findings. And um, so, what then is the consequences of, of uh, when when we look, uh, for example, um, uh, today we we struggle with with um, interpreting the findings of uh, the virologists and epidemiologists about what to do uh, uh, for or against <laughs> rather against the corona crisis. So, what would you say is the the practical insight then of of your pragmatist perspective? Well, um, the the position I'm arguing against would be a position that says um, that there's no need for discussion about what to do because science tells us what to do, and in a way, of course, science in, informs us and informs uh, politicians um, about what is going on. So, of course, science tells us something about the world that no lay person could have figured out uh, with her own means. Um, but then, of course, what to do is also a political question. And um, the scientism I'm arguing against um, conflates politics and science and wouldn't wouldn't leave room for democratic deliberation about what to do um, that doesn't mean to ignore the facts uh, of course there are facts like there is a virus and it's very dangerous and um, there's a pandemic and um, there, um, scientists virologists can tell us what will probably happen if we do this or that, and we shouldn't ignore that. Um, but it's a, it's a second step to, to, uh, to make political decisions and to communicate these decisions. So um, otherwise we would live in an um, 
expertocracy. Is this an English word? Yeah. Yeah. So there's still need for democratic um, uh, discourse, even though we acknowledge that uh, science um, can play a crucial role in this, in this, uh, or should play and will play a crucial role in this uh, public sphere. Actually, I think, I mean, of course, you could vote for a, for a um, government of of um, of experts who just, uh, <laughs> yeah, have a dictatorship and know what's uh, scientifically um, uh, recommended, and then they they make the laws. Um, But I wouldn't. I'm a Democrat, and um, I think there are good reasons for uh, democratic organization of societies. And um, again, I wouldn't make the dichotomy so strong. Um, a demo, uh, a demo, de sorry, democratic delib deliberation and uh, decision-making processes must be grounded in 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 facts, in, in, in knowledge about um, what's going on in the world. So, of course, citizens and politicians and everybody who um, is part of the deliberation um, needs to be informed and needs to have a certain degree of scientific literacy to, and we see how important that is at the moment, to at least have a um, feeling and good intuition um, for what is serious science and what is pseudoscience, um, who can we trust, uh, which research results are trustworthy and which aren't. Um, and then ba based on these facts and knowledge, uh, we can go into the discussion. I think that's what I want to say. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. But again, these questions, of course, also uh, can be answered uh, democratically or under the re regime of science already. So there, there, there is, of course, the idea that science itself tells us what good science is, whereas... Um, Uh, the, the, the problem is that uh, maybe you indeed need to, uh, an, an outside criterion in order to tell good or helpful science from apart from um, pseudoscience or 
or science that is uh, not helpful? Do you think that science itself can can tell us uh, what what it is to be scientific or good science? Well, I guess every I mean, there is not the science. <laughs> there are a lot of sciences, and um, um, especially when uh, I mean, in German, it's the Wissenschaft, which includes also the humanities, not also not only the sciences, and of course, every discipline has its um, special um, criteria. What it means to to be uh, good, uh, good social science, uh, good philosophy. Good biology, um, and of course we should take um, take serious the criteria of the of the particular sciences. Um, I wouldn't, um, of course, I wouldn't dare to say um, uh, from an outside and a non-professional perspective to say someone is um, is a Bad biologist or something like that, um, but I'm I'm thinking, and I mean the, the the particular scientific community has to decide um, in a way, but of course the criteria can also change, and um, I mean that's something that uh, Kuhn <laughs> told us um, that perhaps what we consider normal science. At one point, gets uh, overthrown by a scientific revolution, and then there's another paradigm, and then what counts as normal and good science is something completely different. So it's a permanent process of evaluating um, processes of inquiry. But I think my point was a little bit different that um, even me as a layperson in in um, respect to natural sciences should be um, should be educated to recognize if someone is um, for example an outsider in his community and perhaps is doing um, um, has perhaps political interests um and um that that's what i meant by scientific literacy that any educated person is in the position to at least be um <laughs> critically aware of that not every person who has um a sign on his shirt scientist is a person who tells the absolute truth Perhaps I leave it like that. <laughs> so the the absolute truth now uh, brings us to the question of religion and God. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I I assume that also in in the in the in the um, one could put your position also in religious uh, perspective uh, in religious questions as a kind of middle ground. It is not. Uh, theistic, but it is also not atheistic. So it leaves open the door, the the, the door, as uh, you write. It leaves open the possibility for believing, but it is not itself proposing 
theory of absolute truth or God or uh, religious belief systematically. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's a perspective I really strongly adopt uh, from William James, um, who elaborated on the question of religion or more exactly of religious experience and his uh, varieties of religious experience. Um, and who struggled exactly with this question um, a lot. Like I, uh, there's the option of, of, of a God who, who comforts me, who guarantees me life after death. But um, how does that correspond to my experience? Um, can I really, as a, as a modern person uh, living in a, in, a, in a world that puts a lot of trust in science and um, is, yeah, now even more than 100 years ago when James wrote, um, it's a secularized world in which belief is or um, beliefs are only one option. Religious beliefs are only one option. Or there are a lot of options um, which, um, which faith I choose. And um, it is exactly that point where you think you need to believe something um, and you, yeah, you, you don't want to just give a, um, like a naive, you don't want to give in to a naive faith, um, but you feel there is something about it. Now, what, what do you do? How can you um, take a critical stance towards your uh, longing? <laughs> and that's a question that James um, addressed uh, in a lot of his writings and I think is still um, and even more a question today for, for human beings. And um, I think the point about taking a humanist stand is exactly to acknowledge that need for, um, for certain, um, yeah, I would say certainty, uh, which we always should be very uh, critical of. So I want I want something to be true, to be absolutely true. I want to know if I will have a life after death. I want to know. I want that someone tells me that life has a meaning and which, which is what is the meaning of life. Um, and it's okay to have this, um, this need and this longing. Um, but how do I um, manifest that need in my life? And um, do I have to say this is all um, this is all all a lie? So are religions only delusions or certain worldviews? Do I have to say that the universe uh, has absolutely no meaning and that my existence has absolutely no meaning? Or is there, as you said, a middle path um, finding meaning in in human activity and Perhaps even leaving room for religious belief in a traditional sense. And um, I think it's possible to have a critical religious 
position that is has room for doubt and um, isn't an absolute belief. And perhaps that's the... Um, um, uh, yeah, a radical answer that you could give with um, with a pragmatist that an absolute belief is um, you have to, yeah, this it would be a case of self delusion. There's no room for doubt. So I wonder <clears throat> the 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 great uh, neo pragmatist Richard Rorty uh, hold the position that. Uh, you can believe whatever you want in your private sphere as uh, as a way of talking about yourself, uh, giving meaning to your uh, own life and so on. But as, as soon as it enters the public sphere, so democratic deliberation about how to organize the society, uh, you cannot refer to uh, your religious beliefs. Would you follow this position? Um, well, it depends. Um, 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 I do not follow Rorty in this in the strong private public uh, separation, and um, and it, but of course for strategic re I, w I would say for strategic reasons, if I'm a person with a strong religious belief of course what i hold to be valuable um perhaps is very much grounded or not only perhaps for sure is very much grounded in my religious uh, beliefs so um if we have a public arena where we come together to talk about what uh, what we what our interests are and what values uh, we, we want to uh, be important, not, f not only for our private life, but also for um, society. I think it's very, very difficult for a strongly religious person to articulate um, their opinions um, without referring to religious language. And I wouldn't see a problem if we all just come together on the um, metaphorical marketplace <laughs> and just tell our stories, tell um, our neighbors, uh, our citizen neighbors, uh, why we think a certain position uh, is wrong or is um, valuable. And I wouldn't have a problem with um, with religious perspectives in this kind of arena, but of course, if we have um, a political arena in the in the narrow sense, like a parliament or a supreme court, um, then and then of course we are going now in the Rawls Habermas direction. Um, it's problematic to articulate laws for example um, in a language that is not accessible to everyone and that we should try to find um, a, a common language um, so that every citizen of a um, of a community 
of a nation, for example, can um, at least translate it uh, to the, the own their own vocabulary. Um, so, but uh, okay, you you uh, <laughs> you certainly realize that I um, try to evade. Um, <laughs> evade an answer because I think that's a very difficult um, question and I think we should try to find a way to talk to each other because that's something that gets more and more lost um, a public discourse and an honest public discourse and I think it's a good thing to try to bring as much as possible um, into that arena. Um, I, th I think you, you gave a perfectly fine answer, actually. <laughs> so I, I don't see you avoiding the, the question at all. And, and what I really like is that uh, you, um, <clears throat> you try to overcome a kind of uh, um, harsh distinction between the one position who says the, this public discourse should not be Uh, religious at all and should be completely freed from our religious experience which we potentially as human beings have uh, but also on the other side of course the the strongly religious perspective could be that this common language you talked about should actually be a religious language so I think this position you also avoid and and to To um, to take a position that um, takes the religious or um, transcendent experiences seriously, but not completely giving into them or uh, uh, directly relating to uh, them these experiences, not relating them directly to uh, already existing religious uh, belief systems. So that's again. I failed to <laughs> to pose a question. <laughs> okay, I just uh, tell you what I like about your book. That's also okay. Um, should we should we uh, turn to the third topic because um, uh, this maybe also is connected with the questions of uh, what to do and how to justify what to do, and of course, uh, one way of justifying doings is uh, religious justification um, but um, um, yeah let's turn to ethics uh, you start off your ethics chapter with uh, what you call a negative account of ethics uh, which uh, you call failing better uh, <laughs> I was really um, uh, intrigued uh, and maybe you can tell us uh, what you mean by that Well, that's of course something I've um, uh, I've stolen. <laughs> um, it's the famous Beckett um, saying: um, "Ever, tr ever tried, ever failed. No matter, try again, fail again, fail better." Um, and that's something that um, pragmatist philosopher Connor West's also. Uh, Yeah, which is central for uh, for his thinking. This idea of um, 
get away from the idea that you have to get it right or that's even possible to get everything right, but try to fail better. And you will always fail. Um, you will always uh, probably harm other people. Um, you will not live up to your uh, possibilities. Um, but nevertheless, um, the idea is to, to have a learning process. And that's true for not only the individual level, but also for the social level. I mean, we have to be careful here that it's not something like um, an evolution to the better that is guaranteed. I think if we look into human history, it's pretty clear that humans don't get morally better and better and better. <laughs> um, but still, um, that humans are able to learn. So um, it's not an automatic progress to the better. Um, But there's a good chance and there are good reasons to say that certain developments can be read, at least in, in, in hindsight, as a small progress. Um, but not because people discovered what has always been the right thing to do, but because they learned from, from their failures the, the mis miseries that certain practices uh, had. Um, 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 yeah. So it is this, this is what I call the, the via negativa, the, the negative or minimal ethics that is, um, that does not try to say, I have. I have the absolute insight of what is the right thing to do, but I can point to, to practices, to certain values that are harmful. Um, and we should try to overcome those practices. And then let's try something different. And perhaps this, this different is, turns out to be better. So... Um, this is a negative account. You also draw the distinction between moral pluralism and moral relativism. And pluralism is also um, often connected to uh, pragmatism, but also pragmatism is often called a relativistic uh, uh, philosophy. But you try to avoid the relativism. How do you do that? Well, the question is if it really works, because I think the um, the accusation of relativism is perhaps the one that that any person who identifies as a pragmatist um, knows very very well. The moment I certainly do. <laughs> the, the moment you start to give up uh, absolute truth. Um, And um, objective rea uh, realism, you get accused of being a relativist. And um, yeah, and relativists are bad persons because you can do whatever you want and everything is morally right. And you can pick 
whatever you want to be real. And that, of course, is a very bad thing. And I try to, to make clear that um, that's just not the case that if you give up these absolutist thinking, you have to end up in this, in this kind of relativism. Um, and I think there are very, very few positions who are really, I think it's a, a, a straw man discussion to, to, to point to others and say that's, that's bad relativism and you don't have any values at all. And um, so um, what I try to uh, anchor values in is um, interests and needs of, of, of sentient beings. Of course, this is no new move, but I think it's a very sound uh, fundament. Um, and I don't, uh, to be honest, I don't see how um, the, the premise of of God or the premise of the realism of values is, is more sound than um, look <laughs> look at the world and look look um, at the at at people or uh, animals or other sentient beings that get hurt. Um, isn't that enough to ground uh, moral behavior? So of course this is as I said no new move but I think it's it's uh it should be enough to uh to behave morally um and I I, I do not see how um so the idea that only people who believe in god uh can be moral moral persons um, is, is, is even plausible. <laughs> so do you, be, do you uh, stop torturing your dog because you are afraid of going to hell or being punished in your afterlife or because you really see and know and um, feel that it's wrong to do it. I know that's a very basic example, but um, yeah. <laughs> I I think it is uh, uh, certainly enough, uh, and it also uh, connects with uh, positions like Judith Schlar, who thinks that cruelty is the most uh, the worst thing uh, humans can do, and uh, builds her complete political philosophy on this very simple. Um, Assumption. So it is certainly uh, enough for a, a big variety. Also, I don't think that she actually identifies as pragmatist, but um, for for a big variety of of uh, theoretical concepts and um, uh, positions. Uh, you end your your uh, chapter on ethics uh, um, with a plea for a therapeutical turn of moral philosophy. Um, so maybe you can explain what what you mean that uh, by by this new task of of moral philosophy. Well, that connects to the insight that there was no uh, and there can be no universal theory about 
what's absolutely right and absolutely wrong. And this insight, uh, yeah, turns philosophers into, um, or moral philosophers into specialists for uh, a strange kind of theory. So um, I, I plead for um, a more concrete work of, of moral philosophers um, to, to be um, critical midwives <laughs> for, um, for social processes. Um, I don't know if this type of moral philosopher is still very, very common, but um, we should be careful if, no matter what person, but especially philosophers, uh, enter the scene and um, say that they know what's right and what's wrong. Um, and that's, that's as, uh, to say that as if it would be a universal truth. And I think it would be really more helpful if philosophers would understand themselves as um, critical. Um, yeah, therapist is a very is a very uh, strong word, but um, yeah, um, I, I think the the thing about the therapeutical turn is that um, it lays focus on helping people to find out for themselves and to, to, to develop into people with autonomy. And this means also moral autonomy, so that people are enabled to have their own uh, moral compasses and to, to take responsibility for their actions. Um, so this is meta Meta moral philosophy, in a way. That's that's really nice to hear. That that uh, it is a task of philosophy to actually help people instead of telling them what to do. <laughs> um, so we have a, a little time left to talk about death. <laughs> um, and and um, but I don't want to leave out this 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 topic because it was also a great chapter to read. Um, you start with the question, is death a problem at all? And I think for you, to, to a certain degree, it is a problem. Well, yes, of, of course, this question alludes to one of the uh, most famous uh, um, yeah, uh, answers to this problem that, that says, um, so wh why, why should we care at all? Because it's not part of life. If you if you have died, you're dead, and uh, yeah, that's it. Um, we don't have to care about that. But I think, in a way, of course, this is uh, a simple truth. That this is, but I, I think it gets wrong what people fear about death. It's not the fact that I mean, it's not being dead, but it's it's dying. And of course, it's dying under certain circumstances, and it's the death of others, so it's the loss of other persons. And I think this is a problem. Um, it's a, it's something philosophers 
should um yeah should should address if they talk about uh, if they talk about life they have to talk about death <laughs> or um at least acknowledge that uh you you cannot um evade to see that life is always a finite thing and um that it's that's uh yeah and, and i think this is something that it's still not done enough so there's not enough uh mortalist philosophy <laughs> i know there's some people but it's it's not the main thing i um i i think we still tend to say um that it's death is no problem and it's no exact ex that it's no ex existential problem um and uh yeah well anna in view of uh being to death so Heidegger's famous Sein zum Tode, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, my last question is, what are you currently working on? Well, my, my current book project, uh, in a way, is a, is a follow-up to uh, Pragmatic Humanism Revisited. Um, and I, I left out one big question that I hope to be the biggest, perhaps the biggest question um, for the next centuries, and that's a question of our climate, climate change or better climate crisis. And um, I think, of course, it's, again, it's a scientific question. It's a question about facts. And uh, so I'm not a climate scientist, but um, as philosophers, we could help to find ways to accompany the transformations we need to undergo as a as a society and this is also has an existential dimension because perhaps uh, you know that um, in your circle of friends or family um, what happens when we talk about this upcoming catastrophe everyone is either trying to ev evade or um, yeah, getting depressed. So um, how can we get a position that enables us to still be um, not panicking? <laughs> and um, how can we try to be part of the transformation and not only passive objects of a change that will come if we like it or not? So um, I try to take the concept of meliorism that I uh, also uh, already introduced in, in, in this book and try to, to, to elaborate on what could ecological meliorism mean. So that's my next project. That sounds like a huge, huge uh, project and, and very interesting and urgent one. Uh, Anna, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Kai. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.